Hello there, welcome to the second series of the Tech Means Business podcast. This is episode one. The purpose of this podcast is to bring people into our virtual studio who are interested and involved on a professional level with technology, whether they work in technology companies or whether they work in companies that are very much involved in all things tech. And I guess really there aren't many businesses in the world that don't use technology as a critical component in what they do each day. I guess somewhere out in the deep dark woods there's probably a luthier or a a violin maker who doesn't actually use technology greatly during the course of their working day. However, you know, come the evening the chances are they're firing up Netflix like the rest of us and of course as far as business goes they're probably filing a tax return annually anyway, and I bet you they'll use a computer for that. So there aren't really, as I say, many organisations that don't have a technological component. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be talking to Stephanie Shiras, who's Vice President and General Manager at Red Hat Enterprise Linux Business Unit. Now, for those of you who don't know anything about Red Hat, they're, I guess, one of the biggest open source enterprise companies that there are out there. They were acquired by IBM, I think, four or five years ago for ooh, probably more than my annual salary, at least. And since then, Red Hat have gone on really to help steer IBM, I guess, towards a more open source approach, which I guess means writing code that's available to a community of users, all of whom can download it, all of whom can contribute to it, and gradually over time we get code and applications and services that are powerful, that are massively debugged because of this kind of peer review that goes on. Now of course Red Hat don't charge for their software per se, as does as do no one I guess in the open source world, but instead Red Hat make their money by adding on to their products, if you like, service contracts or support contracts, so that when people run into problems and difficulties or when they hit particular business issues, Red Hat can step in and help sort out the problem. So, Stephanie, that is enough about me talking about you and about Red Hat. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, welcome to the podcast. Sure. So, um, so my background, I, I, I grew up an engineer. I am a, a mechanical engineer by training, and I got involved in computers starting at the metallization level. So I am a metallurgist by training, and I did uh, depositions on silicon chips for quite a number of years. And slowly, I say, I moved my way up the stack, up into chip design and system architecture, and uh, now leading up into the operating system level. And currently, I lead the Red Hat Enterprise Linux business for Red Hat. And, uh, and uh, it's been great. It's um, part of the work is still remains quite uh, the ability to lead the technical work, which I love, as well as working with the customers and the business side. And I think that's one of the things, Joe, that it's great to get a chance to talk to you about is because you, you certainly seek to bridge that both business side and the technology side. And that's to me, probably one of the most exciting spaces and the role that I currently have and in the tech, technology field in general. Yeah, I mentioned in my intro, of course, about how uh, there are really very few businesses in the world who don't have technology as a component. But of course, the, the downside is that technology these days it, it can be fiercely uh, difficult to understand. I mean, the, the concepts of a, a system on chip or uh, the the concepts of a a container versus a a virtual machine, you know, these are almost, you know, ancient Greek, I think, to many people. So is part of your role really one of kind of getting the message of technology over in plain English to a a business audience, almost a translation role, I guess? 
Yeah, very much so. And it's both a, it's a bi-directional discussion. Um, as you state, I think one of the things that has changed in the market so dramatically is technology is now viewed, while it's used in almost every business, of course, it's now being viewed more and more as a differentiator, as a competitive advantage, et cetera, um, and how to use technology to do that. So bridging between those two is super interesting as I get to talk through both how the technology can help a business grow, expand, differentiate, and then vice versa, how we take the input and those needs and feed that back into the technology that we do at Red Hat, but also even more excitingly, how we work that upstream and into the communities and into the sort of open source world at large. And that to me is one of the uh, most interesting aspects uh, that we drive today. Now, you're a mechanical engineer by trade. Um, you have a PhD in mechanical engineering from Harvard University, no less. So are you one of those uh, strange beasts then who can both program in machine language and design chips and yet talk to normal folk as well? Yeah, I've moved up the stack. And, and um, so it's been a very interesting perspective to bring into this role. Um, as you look at the market and how things have kind of interacted back and forth, it's been a bit about how hardware and software all the way up the stack interact and how you drive differentiation by having them interact. And if you look at the market over the past 15, 20 years, there was a time when it was all about how the operating system and the hardware were super tightly tied. And then that sort of spread out to be much more separate, right? And and have those be those be more agnostic. But now as we move into the world of machine learning and artificial intelligence, and the needs of those applications are so, so aggressive. Now we're moving back into a space where, you know, the hardware and the software interaction becomes really key again for some of those very differentiating and aggressive workloads. So to me, that's really exciting. Having been, having sort of grown up through this, right, from the hardware side into the software side, that to me is super exciting to see. So is that a move towards specialization then or a move towards what? An, an optimization, right? I think that I think it's really a move to optimization without moving back to proprietary, which is is a really fascinating way to create and continue uh, continue standards. You know, as you start to see even in artificial intelligence and machine learning things like frameworks be developed. So it's more building around standards but still being able to get that optimization across the different layers in the stack. Is that a problem, though, in a in a business sense, in that uh, the Red Hat stack, I guess, is putting forwards uh, very specialized um, solutions, very specialized applications. But of course, at the end of the day, they are effectively uh, cross-platform, aren't they? I mean, all right, it might take a lot of work, but couldn't you pick up uh, an implementation that's been achieved in Red Hat and, and drop it onto a, an Ubuntu stack or a SUSE stack or really whatever you wanted? I think it's part of the magic of open source in general. I mean, when you look at how you get innovators all over the world to collaborate and progress, you have to have a set of standards to drive interoperability. And that has um, that has been one of the things that has uh, progressed so well in the world of open source in order to enable these interaction points to allow everyone to build upon the innovations of others is, is building upon standards. And I think that's one of the great things that that participating in that world allows us to do and, and how you influence and how you participate in upstream to continue those standards. And those, those standards are not, not limiting, right? I mean, sometimes I think when people hear the term standards, they say, well, that's a, that's a limiting factor. And, and actually an open source has proven that these standards actually become something to build and expand and, and, um, 
grow upon in order to have everyone be able to participate. So I think I think that's one of the interesting places and roles that Red Hat plays here, particularly in how we engage upstream, is to continue to drive standards that aren't limiting, but allow allow us to participate broadly and, and customers get freedom of use. Um, but in addition, right, are able to pull out and extract the the, the core benefits of things like accelerators, like um, different architectures and multi-architectures, et cetera. Now, you mentioned upstreaming there, and I guess I think that's one of the, the most impressive things, really, about um, about Red Hat, in that since it was acquired by the oil tanker, if you like, that is IBM, you know, it's gradually, or rather IBM has managed to, uh, to steer uh, round towards more of that open source model, and I guess in some ways Red Hat's been the uh, the catalyst for that. I mean, Microsoft obviously doing the same, steering their particular behemoth round to um, uh, cloud based services and and uh, systems like that, which are uh, remote from the business. Um, now, you know, when when Red Hat was acquired by IBM, there's a great deal of eye rolling, you know, in the in the open source community. Oh, things are going to be awful. It's all going to go wrong. But actually, things seem to be going okay. I mean, why is that? Has has Red Hat managed to hang on to a level of independence? I mean, what's uh, what's the mix? What's the secret sauce? Definitely, we have been able to maintain a level of independence. I would say it's built upon um, kind of what you said about respect. I think there's an understanding that Red Hat's value is um, not just about what we do, but how we do it. So our value, as as you talked about, you know, working upstream and extolling the the open source way is that's really core to our value. So changing our culture, changing how we do things, changing how we approach the market really compromises the value that Red Hat provides both to the market, but now, of course, also to IBM. So I think there's a huge amount of respect for um, what we bring to the table and how we do it and protecting our ability to continue how we do it. I think our uh, role in the market, similar to how how open source has evolved, it, it's all about ecosystem, right? Um, that's really what Linux has done. It's created an ecosystem that brings value collectively at, um, as, as everyone participates in it. And I think IBM has recognized with the purchase of Red Hat that um, that ecosystem that comes along with it, that is what we help bridge um, in the market, right? How do we bridge the applications with the multiple architectures, with the public clouds and where we run it? But our goal is to provide customers' choice in leveraging the broadest ecosystem possible using our technology. And so compromising that ecosystem really compromises the value. Honorable mention there, I think, for the uh, for the C word, compromise, obviously, but also customer. And of course, that brings us up to the whole idea of monetization. Now, what strikes me is that Red Hat are probably the first uh, company really that stood the test of time, I guess, in the open source arena, that's actually become quite commercially successful. Um, I mean, the, the the model is well known. Software is free to download, and you can download it and compile it, run it on your Raspberry Pi, or you can run it on your on the supercomputer that happens to be nestled in the corner of your <laughs> um, of your living room. Um, and what you do, of course, as a customer is you use what's essentially a, um, a free product, but you pay on top for support. Uh, for other services, uh, things like consultancy or, you know, helping you uh, work out which direction the technology in your business is going to go. Now, 
that model of, um, if you like, free stuff plus, um, I see being adopted all over the place um, in the free and open source world at the moment. Um, is that the de facto model, do you think, for, um, for uh, open source service companies and software companies to monetize? Uh, or are there different ways, do you think, um, that such companies like Red Hat uh, can earn an honest buck? Yeah, I think that's an that's an interesting question. Um, coming back to where we where we started earlier, one of the great things here in our customer set is we listen to our customers what they need as a um, and what they're trying to accomplish, and we work that back upstream. And then this becomes this perpetual feedback loop where where we feel Red Hat plays a key role in the market. So it is very much about listening to what our customers need because you know with over with millions of open source projects ongoing it's um it's a daunting world to go into if you're going to run your entire company on it and you 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 need those payments to run through and the system can't go down etc and so that's the value that we want to leverage our skill set to those customers as well as we want to take what they're interested in doing next work that back into upstream communities to make sure that they have a roadmap going forward that delivers on the value that they require I think we are seeing a um, broadening in the in the value that customers are looking for, right? Moving into new technologies, into things like, of course, Kubernetes aspects and moving into containerization level deployments, moving into management tooling and capabilities. So I think I think there's going to be a progression in the technologies as open source gets adopted into, you know, core mainstream mission critical types of applications and production level applications. But I think I think there is a need for that um, in the market, right? As the technology continues to move um, up the stack and open source becomes certainly much more pervasive in the market, it comes down to a, a customer has a choice, right? In how they want to invest. Do they want to invest in participating in the open source world themselves and, and supporting their own you know, stack and open source stack, which is an option for them, right? That's the beauty of the open source world. Or do they choose to invest in the application space or in other areas of the business that are equally critically important, things like go-to-market, things like the partnership. So I think it's, we, um, we provide a subscription model, as you know, the goal is there to have a relationship with Red Hat. That's how I view the subscription model. As you said, it's not about the bits and solely about the bits, right? They're open source bits. So it is about the relationship that they can have with Red Hat and the value that that delivers, which includes things like support, things like access to articles and, and engagement with the Red Hat community, but also things like asking to say, listen, I mean, I think this open source project has interest to me. And then how does Red Hat start to um, look at a customer's needs and work that in upstream. So it's a very dynamic relationship, right? Very bi-directional between the customer, us, and the upstream communities. Now, those relationships that you speak of there, Stephanie, they're, I think they're quite um, complex. And it, it kind of touches on, I think, one of the things that um, open source has in its favor i mean it's not always you know a, a bed of roses there's the issue of you know um uh, sharding and 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 forking of, of projects and the whole thing can can become terribly disparate on, in some cases but on on the plus side i guess that if we roll back a bit we're not looking at 
800 to 1200 developers sat in a sat in a building uh, working on a um, a proprietary platform what we're talking about is something like 80,000 worldwide uh, developers you know many languages and all these developers are squashing bugs or filing bug reports you know and um, putting forward issues and their grumbles and having crazy ideas about the next big feature that a platform or a um, a piece of software um, should have and obviously you know those um developers all have relationships with big players like red hat and like canonical and you know those ideas do get pushed upstream either by the uh, developers themselves or their the baton if you like is picked up by someone like red hat but that makes a very complicated relationship doesn't it i mean essentially what we're looking at really here to me is that red hat customers are forming a relationship with Red Hat themselves. Red Hat are a bit like me, really, you know, t-shirt wearing, quite geeky. Um, and I always think of business customers really as, if you like, conservative with a small c, you know, they, they wear ties. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're very sensible people because, you know, people's livelihoods and uh, salaries and uh, depend on them and depend on the decisions that they make. And so therefore, if you kind of get a t-shirt wearing geek, um, wandering into a boardroom and saying, look, you know, we're really excited about containers. We're really excited about OpenShift and Kubernetes and, and all these kind of almost cutting edge technologies. Aren't the Red Hat customers um, being quite conservative with a small C and turning around and saying, no, no, what we want, we want, uh, we want tried and tested methods. We want tried and tested methodologies. And aren't those two things um, incompatible? And isn't the whole kind of mixture one of incredibly complicated relationships? Honestly, I think it's it's all over the map, to be honest, Joe. It is, um, and I think that's part of the part of the beauty of what's happening in the market today. All customers have what they currently run, what they're currently comfortable in the current skill sets that they have in-house. And that's important to them. Um, so their ability to decide on their terms and their conditions based upon what's happening in their business, in the market, in the world, how quickly they adopt new technologies and where they adopt it uh, varies incredibly widely. Even, even for things like the value that they're looking for from some of those new technologies varies widely. So you see, I, I, when I talk to customers, I see everything from, you know, we're going to run VMs and start to experiment a little bit with containerization here and there, but quite, quite conservative in how quickly they want to move to it to customers who want to deploy, um, really just move their applications into containers for the deployment value, right? The deployment value of being able to spin it up, spin it down, replicate it in a very, very structured way to the customers who are all in on microservices and converting their applications to microservices, which is a whole different world, right, with orchestration, Kubernetes, et cetera. So I would say it's a full gambit. And I, I think that's one of the things in the market today that's so important. There's no right or wrong way to do this. And to me, that's the benefit of hybrid cloud, right, whether it's on-prem, off-prem, VMs, bare metal, um, containerized, orchestrated. Uh, hybrid cloud is about a capability. Right? It's not about a destination or, you know, what percent do I have on prem and what percent do I have in a public cloud? It, it's really about having the capability to move in and choose based upon what that company needs, quite honestly, at that particular time. 
Do you know, I think that's significantly important there because what it seems to be about, therefore, is uh, equipping customers, equipping businesses with the technology that actually does a job and has an outcome um, rather than kind of, uh, which is very tempting to do, rather than kind of getting into the technical weeds, you know, and you were talking about Ansible scripts maybe, you know, versus uh, Kubernetes um uh, orchestration methods, that kind of thing, and very often with uh, with conversations about technology and business, we do end up in those uh, in those technology, those geek weeds, um, if you like. Uh, but you strike me actually, Stephanie, as as one of those technologists um, who you know can translate, if you like, geek into into plain English. And um, is that something that you were born with or has it come from uh, your experience in the workplace or is it, you know, is it something you've learned? Um, I think it is definitely something I have gotten better at over the years. And, and that's, that's partly that's the gift of, of having the opportunity to talk to so many customers. I, I think I, I often say I would be a much better engineer now with the experience I've had in the in the discussions I've had with customers. Um, there's no greater there's no greater pride for an engineer to have a discussion with a customer when you understand how they've used the technology you've created and vice versa. Right? There's no better there's no better feeling when you talk to a customer and you really understand what they're trying to do and you're able to go back and talk to an engineer and they they can start, as you said, get down into the nitty gritty to say, okay, this is how we could architect this. This is how we could code this. Um, this is how we could modularize the code, et cetera. Um, I, I mean, that's, that's the beauty of the role I have now. And I think on both sides, um, it's been a, it's been an opportunity to learn and to um, kind of start to, bridge that. But I think the, the skill of translation um, is one that is becoming more and more por- important no matter, no matter what your role is, even if you're a technical coder, right? The ability to sort of translate that into, into business value is, um, is becoming more and more important as these two worlds get closer and closer together. Um, like, like you, right? I, I certainly get really excited when we when we get into my own technical areas of expertise to start to dive in. But um, I think I've come to realize that um, it's not just technology problems are not the the only thing. Communication problems are equally important, and, and making sure that those communication problems are fixed and addressed, and everyone is communicating clearly, has become something that now I recognize um, more so than ever is is really critically important, right? If you really want to deliver value. Yeah, I guess the nirvana for that would be to get, um, you know, engineers, software developers, uh, complete with nirvana t-shirts probably and, and ponytails, you know, stood in a, a boardroom uh, being taken through a simple, I don't know, profit and loss sheet or something like that, and then of course the flip side of that would be to get your your C-suite executives um, and and try and get them to write a you know mock up a web page or um, write a um, a hello world script in whatever language you fancy, really. Um, I I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, and like I said, it's probably the uh, one of the one of the best things I love about my job today. Now, I'd like to change tack completely, if I may, Stephanie, actually, and draw on your experience as an engineer. Uh, there's been a lot in the news recently about ARM chips. Obviously, there's the whole Apple thing going on um, as well. 
Uh, and also supercomputing, and in fact the two have come together, haven't they? And there's the uh, the supercomputer running arm um, has just made it into the into the hit parade of uh, fast supercomputers. As an engineer, where do you think uh, the whole high-end HPC supercomputing uh, paradigm is going, and how's it affecting business? I think looking back, things like HPC have have always been a bit of a tip of the spear for what comes into what comes into uh, kind of mainstream computing. I think now, though, more than ever, we're seeing those two worlds collide, heavily driven, I think, by uh, machine learning, deep learning capabilities coming in. But if if you look at kind of a a quite high level, what exists today that really didn't exist in the past was a combination of a ton of data, right, that we continuously grows, but now there's just immense amounts of data to be mined and learned from. There's also a huge amount of new um, architecture and hardware capabilities that didn't exist in the past. You mentioned ARM, of course. There's also acceleration capabilities that didn't exist in the past. And that's combining with a set of applications that are being developed largely in the open source community. This sort of trifecta has created this amazing ability now to look at what machine learning, deep learning, artificial intelligence can all do into mainstream computing. It's heavily now tying to what used to be, as you, as you rightly said, HPC was kind of relegated into national labs and very specific areas in academia. But this sort of all happening in, in, in AI world is really merging these two things. So the hardware is available, the data is available, the applications are now available. Pulling that together and pulling it into mainstream is is bridging these two worlds at a much faster pace. I think one of the things that's going to happen, however, is that when it was relegated into national labs and a few few select areas, those folks did a lot of the aggregation that had to be done across the hardware, the software, um, you know, getting getting all of that all of that code up and running and working and being able to run it across a grid, et cetera. As this goes more mainstream, it's going to require the ecosystem to change a bit, right? It's going to require the ecosystem to have much tighter collaborations between the hardware partners, the software partners, the OS partners, the application frameworks, and et cetera. I think I think that whole shift in the in the ecosystem is going to have to happen because it used to be containable in the HPC world, now it's going to have to be um, democratized. And so the ecosystem is going to have to play a key role for how companies like Red Hat, who they engage with, who they partner with, how do we help bridge that ecosystem going forward, I think is going to be very, very important. Um, the great thing, of course, is that it it is happening. Both of these are heavily moving now in, into open source. So open source is heavily driving it. Linux is heavily driving it. So it's building upon the standards and the communities in open source in order to help accelerate that. But from a from a vendor perspective and from an ISV software hardware provider, there, I think what we're going to see is a change in the ecosystem and how that ecosystem has to work together in order to bridge that um, those technology capabilities much tighter. Well, thanks ever so much, Stephanie, uh, for sparing the time to speak to us today. Um, We are drawing up to that dread 30-minute mark, so I'm going to have to draw things to a close. Now, obviously, over the course of this um, series, I get to talk to lots of different people, you know, right across the spectrum, uh, from business right through to hardcore technology. But it's always smashing, really, to um, to talk to someone who's who's one of the good guys, 
Um, one of the people who's very passionate and committed about open source and committed about helping businesses and uh, helping organisations do what they do what they want to do with technology. And it's um, really fantastic, as I say, for you to spare your time uh, to talk to us. So thank you very much, Stephanie Shiraz. No, my pleasure. My pleasure. Um, it's great to get a chance to talk to you. Um, you can see I'm pretty passionate about this stuff, right? It's uh, to your point on Linux, I think... Uh, I think it's not only the good guys, but it's the fact that everyone was able to participate. And, and Linux has taught the world how, how real community development can be done and how innovation can be driven. So it, it's great to get a chance just to talk to you about the market and the business. So I appreciate the time, Joe. And with that, we'll draw things to a close. I hope you can join me again on the next episode of the Tech Means Business podcast, where we'll be talking to interesting, fascinating and insightful people from the world of business and technology. I hope to speak to you soon.